In this hour, I've been waiting on this. It's been far too long since I've been in conversation with my friend and brilliant scholar, Reza Aslan. So here's the question. How seriously do we take our American ideals of constitutional democracy and whose freedom do we truly support? A conversation in this hour, for the hour, about a little-known martyr named Howard Baskerville and how one person's actions can have revolutionary consequences that reverberate, indeed, the world over. Baskerville's remarkable journey to justice, freedom, equality, and self-determination, I suspect, will inspire you if you stick around for the hour, uh, now that we are joined by the author of the acclaimed book, he's got a number of them, but his most recently acclaimed book is called An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville. Reza Azam, been far too long, my friend. How are you? I'm doing well, Travis. It has been too long. It's great to be speaking with you again. It is great to hear your voice again. You're well? Your family's well? We're well, yeah, just, yeah, you know, getting ready for the L.A. summer. Yeah. Uh, I think it's going to be a hot one this year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, well, funny you say that. We just had uh, uh, a conversation in our first hour uh, about uh, the, the climate change and global warming and all that we're seeing courtesy of uh, uh, these uh, wildfires in Canada blowing across our borders mm-hmm. and um, had a fascinating conversation, which I know you would have appreciated, about, uh, I said to, the, to our guest, uh, Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, said to him that all of our conversation in this country politically is always about our southern border. Ain't nobody talking about the northern border. And now, uh, yeah. We, yeah, we see the ways in which what's happening at the <laughs> northern border is impacting all of us a great deal more than somebody running across a, uh, a border to get a job that you don't want anyway. Uh, but I digress <laughs> on that point. Um, so, uh, no, it, it, it is likely going to be a long, hot summer in L.A. and not just in L.A., all across this country as we see temperatures continue to rise. But, again, we spent time talking about that in Hour 1, and now I'm glad to have you on in Hour 2 to talk about uh, Howard Baskerville. Let me, let me just start by asking this. I'm always fascinated. Uh, you know, I've written a few books in my own, in my own time, as you know. Mm-hmm. I'm always fascinated about, about how uh, authors, how scholars like you, choose certain subject matter how did this subject matter rise to the top of your list it's funny this is a story that i've always wanted to tell the story of howard baskerville is one that i feel like i've always known as a child i mean uh baskerville when i was growing up in iran was a heroic i would say mythic character he was this 22 year old christian missionary who in 1907 uh, went to what was then called Persia, uh, what we now call Iran, uh, in order to preach the gospel and teach English. And he just happened to have arrived in the middle of the first democratic revolution in the Middle East. Uh, we call it the Constitutional Revolution of 1905. This was a, a period in which young uh, Iranian men and women were clamoring onto the streets Um, asking for the creation of a constitution, a document that would lay out all the rights and privileges of every citizen in the country and for the creation of a parliament, a a legislative body that would not just be able to pass laws, but more importantly, to curb the unchecked authority of the Shah. And Baskerville, I mean, it's it's a long, fascinating, amazing story, but the you know the two years that he was in Iran and this transformation that that uh, that he underwent in which uh, at the end of his life he gave up his missionary position he gave up his American citizenship and he reconstituted his students 
into a militia and fought alongside the Iranians against the Shah for their freedom and then ultimately died this kind of heroic martyrdom death, that has made him a hero in Iran for the last century. And when I was growing up, I mean, there were schools named Howard Baskerville. There were auditoriums named after him, streets named after him. His uh, his grave, which is still in Tabriz, the city in which he lived and died, was a kind of pilgrimage site. And every year on the anniversary of his death, April uh, 19th, people would gather at his grave. Iranians would gather at his grave and, and pay homage to this American Christian missionary who died for Iran. I mean, that, that sounds bizarre, doesn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. what you know about Iran. And so this story has always just been so fascinating to me. It's a story I've always wanted to tell. And finally, I think the time came to, to be able to do it. Yeah. I want to talk more about Howard Baskerville as we move through this hour. And let me tell you why I wanted to have Reza on, um, in case you're trying to figure out what this has to do with you. Um, I think there's some fascinating parallels um, to, to unpack in this hour, because we in the African-American community uh, have a powerful legacy of fighting for our own civil rights and equality. And as we mm-hmm. fought for ourselves, others have been the beneficiaries of that in this place called America. And so we understand the yeah. significance of solidarity, uh, activism, and the pursuit of justice in a way that most communities do not. And so it's in that spirit that I wanted to to invite Rezon to learn more about Howard Baskerville and sort of draw some parallels uh, between Baskerville's journey and the experiences of black folk in this country, highlighted uh, by the shared, I think, aspirations of freedom, equality, self-determination, and more. I look forward to the rest of this hour with Reza Aslam when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. In this hour, as we talk with renowned Emmy and Peabody-nominated scholar and best-selling author Reza Aslan, uh, offering us a profound exploration of some serious questions through the lens of Howard Baskerville's life and sacrifice a little-known martyr who had a remarkable impact on the democratic revolution in Iran and the parallels between Howard Baskerville's sacrifice there and the sacrifice of black folk and others here. Uh, so delighted to have Reza Azan on in, in this hour. All right, Reza, we got some time now, uh, the rest of the hour for that matter. So so tell me a bit more about, about Howard Baskerville, um, and um, we'll, we'll jump from there. He was born in Nebraska. Um, you know, he came from a long line of Presbyterian preachers. His father, his grandfather, uh, his uncle, his older brother, uh, you know, all of them had gone into the ministry. And that was what was expected of him. Mm-hmm. He followed in his father's footsteps and, and went to Princeton, where he studied uh, uh, Christian ministry. Uh, and then, you know, when he graduated in 1907, I think he wanted to have an adventure first, right? He knew that eventually he was going to have to go back. His family was living in South Dakota at that point. He knew he was going to have to go back to South Dakota and eventually take up a preaching uh, job. But, you know, he was part of this generation uh, that uh, was kind of the first real generation of what we now refer to as evangelical Christians, right? Mm -hmm. He wanted to to convert the world. He, he wanted to go out into, you know, those dark and foreign and exotic reaches of the planet and to, and to bring the gospel to those who uh, had not heard it. He really, really wanted to go to China or Japan. It's, it's a very funny story. He had written a number of letters to the Presbyterian Board of Foreign Missions asking to be placed in China and Japan, but 
the missions board had a had a different idea for him, and they wanted him to go to Persia, which is someplace that he absolutely did not want to go. He had read a lot of these missionary reports about Persia, talking about it as this you know just terrible place. Uh, one of my absolute favorite missionary uh, reports uh, from the time called Persia a place where quote all the sins of the Decalogue are ever-present. <laughs> and so, you know, he'd, he'd, been, he'd been really scared about the Mohammedans, the solid wall of Mohammedanism, as they, as they referred to it. Uh, but, you know, it, when you're a missionary and the Church says, we're sending you to so-and-so place, you don't really have much to say about it. So, reluctantly, he went off to Persia, mm. um, arrived in the fall of 1907, and really just discovered that everything that he'd been told about the country and its people were a lie. Absolutely fell in love with the Persians, the culture, uh, the food, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. uh, be- instantly became the most popular teacher at this uh, at this missionary school in the city of Tabriz, in the, in the northwest of the country, partly that had to do with the fact that he was by far the youngest teacher. Um, but he really developed this deep love and affection uh, for the country and its people, and especially his students. What he, I think, didn't realize when he was heading to Persia is that he was walking into a revolution, a mm. revolution that had begun about two years earlier, and which actually, before he arrived, had achieved some success. The the Shah of Iran had given to the demands of the people. He had allowed for a constitution to be written, a progressive document, actually, uh, setting uh, forth, you know, not just the rights and privileges of the, of the citizens, but uh, giving the, the freedom of speech, freedom of religion. And then also there was already an election for the first parliament, uh, this legislative body that would now have, you know, the right to kind of control and curb the the autocratic tendencies of the Shah. The problem, however, is that about three days after signing that constitution and allowing for elections, the Shah died. Mm-hmm. And his son, this kind of 36-year-old, really terrible, like, I mean, listen, I'm Iranian. I can tell you, we've had some miserable SOBs sit on that throne <laughs> in, uh, in Iran. But this guy, this guy took the cake. Um, he, you know, w- grew up believing that the country was his by birthright. Uh, he was incensed with his father for having dared to, you know, uh, give up any of his uh, uh, God-given authority. And almost immediately, he launched a war against the revolutionaries. He actually brought uh, his Russian-made cannons uh, uh, up to the parliament building, and blew it up with the parliamentarians still inside. They were in the middle of a session, and he just blew up the building. Uh, and then he used his his Russian-trained troops to essentially conquer every city in Iran back for the crown, every city except for the city of Tabriz mm-hmm. in the northwest, which is the city that Howard Baskerville suddenly arrives in. Yeah. Um, t- tell me how... Uh, I was just thinking as you were talking about these parallels I referenced earlier about blowing up things with, with people inside. If, if that ain't the story of black folk in America, I, I don't know what is, right? 
um, starting with uh, the 16th Street Baptist Church and, and other places we could we could identify and will as we move through this hour talking about these parallels again between mm-hmm. the, the sacrifice and struggle of Howard Baskerville there uh, and what what, what uh, the black community has done here. But I'll put a pin in that for the moment. What I want to get to is how an evangelical Christian goes to Iran, goes to Persia of all places and gets converted. Mm-hmm. His mission, as you mentioned earlier, was to convert um, uh, the world. He goes there right. and he gets converted. And, and let, me, let, me, let, me, let me just say this. Whenever we hear these stories about conversion, uh, and you probably know where I'm going here. Whenever we hear the conversion of any American uh, Christian, it's always a conversion to the worst. It's always a conversion to the other side, and they end up fighting America. They end up becoming... Uh, uh, sympathetic to, to terrorist activity themselves. Here's a guy who's an evangelical Christian, but has a different kind of conversion. If you take my point, how does that happen? That's right. Well, it's funny, you know, he, he was young, he was politically, you know, active and intelligent. And he arrives in this city full of people who are just like him, 20 mm-hmm. year olds who are willing to sacrifice their lives for the freedom and democracy that Baskerville just took for granted back mm-hmm. in the States. So almost immediately, he gets deeply involved in the politics of the revolution. However, he is told in no uncertain terms by the church that sent him to Persia in the first place, by the school that's employing him there in order to teach and preach the gospel, and most importantly, by the U.S. government, that this is none of his business, Mm. that Mm -hmm. he can have absolutely nothing to do with what's happening here. The church tells him, you are there to save souls, not lives. That's not your concern. Uh, The U.S. government, interestingly enough, didn't have any kind of political position on the revolution. Um, It's not like they were in bed with the Shah or anything. In fact, at this point, 1907, the U.S. government probably couldn't even pick out Persia on a map. Mm. Uh, but they were also absolutely 100% convinced that the idea of a true democratic state arising in a Muslim-majority state was so ridiculous, was so laughable, was so impossible, that no American could possibly uh, have anything to do with it. And so they uh, made it very clear to the missionaries in Iran that any interference in the affairs of Persia would be considered an act of treason against the United States, which is a big deal. Wow, yeah. So so here's all this pressure on him to say, none of your business, none of your business. This is not about you. You can have nothing to do with this. But I think what's really fascinating about Baskerville and what makes him worth writing about is that he truly believed that as an American and as a Christian, it was his duty mm. to fight for the rights and the freedoms of these Muslim Iranians, you know, who didn't share his religion, didn't share his culture, didn't share his skin color, uh, spoke a different language, you know, were in so many ways different from him. And yet, in the only way that actually mattered, mm-hmm. were the same. Yeah. 
And ultimately, he was he was willing to defy all of those people and to actually join this revolution. I want to circle back to something you said about three minutes ago, four minutes ago, because there was a sort of how about I put it? I I, I felt this sort of cog, cognitive dissonance uh, in this in this very simple phrase um, that he was there to save souls, not lives. I don't need to color that much yeah. more for you. You're a scholar, but when I say cognitive dissonance, really save souls, but yeah. not lives, Reza. That's right. Yeah, that was the that was the missionary sort of primary goal. You know, remember, this was a time at the beginning of the 20th century in which certainly for the Presbyterian Church, they had only been sending missionaries out into the world for about 30 years or so, 30, mm-hmm. 40 years. It was mm-hmm. a, you know, a fairly new enterprise. And they had missionaries in China. They had missionaries in Russia. They had missionaries, you know, in, in uh, uh, all these parts of the world where, you know, obviously, um, politically speaking, culturally speaking, quite different than the United States. And the missionary code was very clear. You are there to preach the gospel. Now, yes, you can you know, help build schools and help educate the the population. And yes, of course, you know, we're going to use our resources to to feed people and we're going to build hospitals. But all of that, all of it is in the service of converting people to Protestant evangelical Christianity. Mm -hmm. That it's not an end in and of itself. It's a means to an end. Yeah. And so, especially, you know, in the midst of this war, this this revolution, that message was pounded into the heads of the missionaries. Now, I want to be clear. It's not that the missionaries didn't care about the suffering of the of the Persians. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, I, I, I quote a lot of these letters that the missionaries, uh, Baskerville's fellow missionaries, write back home, um, in which they make it very clear. They understand who is the good guy and who is the bad guy in this conflict. There's no... There's no lack of moral clarity about what this revolution is about. The people are asking for their most basic rights, and the Shah is a murderous tyrant, and that all freedom-loving people know whose side you're on in this. It's none of our business. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I take that uh, point. Um, as you were talking, my, my mind was just trying, trying to process the kind of evangelical Christian that Howard Baskerville was and the kind of evangelical Christians we have to deal with in late modernity. You and me both, yeah, yeah, in late modernity. And I can't imagine that any evangelical Christian that you and I have to tussle with, if I can put it that way, in real time would ever do anything like what Howard Baskerville did, Reza really hard to imagine especially a white yeah. evangelical christian yeah. you know that was a that was a huge part of it i mean there was a, a deep well of racism that was involved in the idea that what the iranians were fighting for were un was just unachievable yeah. it's absurd yeah. i mean that was this was the kind of language that the state department was using this is absurd muslims cannot be democratic this is a waste of time. You know, it's going to end eventually. There's no reason why we should expend any kind of resources or efforts supporting them. And from yeah. the Iranian side, it was really funny because especially Howard Baskerville's students, you know, these are 16, 17-year-old kids. Um, they're in an English language 
missionary schools, so they tend to be a little bit more well-off, they tend to be a little bit more highly educated, and they knew far more about America than basketball knew about Iran. Mm -hmm. And what they absolutely understood about America is that this was a country that fought against an imperial colonizing force for its own freedoms, and they... Hold that thought one second. I don't. I don't. I don't hate to cut you off. I mean, hold that thought one second. Let me. Let me get some news, traffic, and sports out of the way. Now you're headed where I want to go, uh, because the the <laughs> these Persian students uh, see America through a different lens. I want to come to that and talk more broadly. Now that you understand more about Howard Baskerville and his struggle and sacrifice, um, to talk about the significance of solidarity activism, and the pursuit of justice in this country. A great deal more to talk about with Reza Aslan when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. In this hour, please be joined by the brilliant scholar, Emmy and Peabody-nominated scholar, best-selling author and dear friend Reza Aslan, uh, whose latest book is called uh, An American Martyr in Persia, An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville. In case you've just tuned in, uh, we've been talking about um, this uh, young American, 22-year-old American named Howard Baskerville, um, a young um, Christian missionary who went to Iran uh, ostensibly to preach the gospel. <laughs> uh, when he got to Iran, he ended up being converted um, uh, himself and ended up fighting with, uh, alongside many of his Persian students. Uh, Iran was known as Persia then. Ended up fighting alongside his students, um, uh, and uh, he has become iconic uh, in that particular country. Uh, I wanted Resla on uh, for a number of reasons, one of which we'll get to in a moment here. Uh, now that we've laid the foundation with this story about Howard Baskerville, uh, his courage and conviction and, and commitment and character. Now that that's been laid, uh, there's some powerful parallels I want to draw uh, between how we have to um, uh, engage uh, in solidarity politics. We have to be advocates. We have to pursue justice in this country uh, to bring about the kind of change that we want. Uh, and the story of the solidarity um, that Howard Baskerville found with these Persian students and uh, the Persian public writ large uh, is a fascinating story uh, for me. Before we broke for news, traffic, and sports, Reza, you were, you were starting to share with me uh, the ways in which his Persian students um, saw America, the lens through which they saw America having uh, to fight for its own freedom. Pick up the story where we left it off. Yeah, well, you know, this school uh, had a robust history program, and so they were teaching these kids about American history. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they were talking about the Revolutionary War, and they were talking about, you know, the creation of the United States and the principles on which it was founded. And the irony of that I don't think was lost on these kids Mm -hmm. who were sitting in class being taught about, you know, the principles of popular sovereignty and and, you know, the, the, the freedoms that are endemic to the human condition by citizens of a country that was saying, well, except not for you guys, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that really tore at Howard Baskerville's mind, you know, this kind of double life that he was forced to, to lead for a while, you know, where he was kind of secretly visiting the front, secretly... Um, helping out as much as he could, you know, with the the revolutionaries, many of whom were his students, mm-hmm. um, while at the same time, you know, going about his business as a missionary and as a teacher, uh, you know, going to, to Sunday services, 
uh, putting his head down, trying to do the work that he had come here to do, knowing that if he got caught, he would be thrown out yeah. of the country. And that's something that he absolutely didn't want. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think, I think that, that is really kind of what has always drawn me to Baskerville. I, you, you and I have talked for a long time. You know, the thing that always animates me the people that I'm most interested in, historical figures, modern figures, are people who, when confronted with oppression, activate their faith mm. to do something mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's that was my biography of Jesus, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's my biography of, of Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad, and and I see that exact same thing here for Baskerville. And I really do see him as sort of a real model, you know, in the modern world for people who do want to do good in the world and who aren't going to let, you know, the color of their skin or the, or the God that they worship or the country that they happen to be born in uh, stop them from doing so. Oh, now we're headed to where, I, where I'm trying to get to. We're headed toward where I want to go uh, with Reza's comments now about uh, Baskerville being a model. Uh, and about activating your faith uh, when faced with oppression, uh, about solidarity and activism and justice. That's where I'm headed. Let me let me close with this about Baskerville specifically. Uh, I think you've, I think you've just answered, it, but let me just give you a chance to you know to hit it again if you if you so choose. Um, the question I want to ask is ultimately, what do you think Baskerville's legacy is? And I think you may have just answered it, but tell me more. Near the end of his life, when he had finally you know, decided that he just couldn't live this double life anymore. And um, one day he actually stood in front of his students and, and told them, just confessed, look, I can't, I can't ignore the suffering on the streets any longer. The best way that I know how to serve th- this country that I've come to love, the people that I came here to serve, is to quit my job as a teacher, to abandon my missionary post, and to go join the fight for freedom. And remarkably, when he gave that speech, most of his students stood up and left with him, joined the battlefield with him. And there was this incredible moment where, you know, as you can imagine, the State Department freaks out about this. No American had joined this conflict, though one thing that I do think is important to understand is that this was an international conflict. There were Russians and Georgians and Armenians and Turks and Arabs a lot of people from around the world had come to to join the Persians in this fight for freedom, but no American. Mm-hmm. And the fact that now suddenly an American had done so was, as you can imagine, a real boon. It was a it was a, it was a big deal for these revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. It it made international news. Um, it made it impossible to ignore the conflict. I think Baskerville understood that. You know, the, 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 the revolution didn't need one more person with a gun. What it needed was an American. Mm-hmm. And that's what he, that's what he did. Wait, there's this moment where uh, the State Department sends uh, an American consul general to the battlefield to basically talk Baskerville out of this. And he, he says to Baskerville, this isn't your fight. These are not your people. This is not your country. It's time for you to pack up your things and go back home or else, you know, that, that charge of treason is going to be right there. Mm -hmm. And Baskerville said what he has become most famous for the words of his, that, that are the ones that I think, you know, anyone who knows this kid knows these words. He said to the American consul general, he looked around the battlefield, all these people from all over the world who had come here to fight. Mm -hmm. 
And he said, the only difference between me and these people is the place of my birth. And that is not a very big difference. Mm. And then he handed over his passport and cut off all connections with the U.S. government. Yeah. And that right there, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that was 116 years ago. Yeah. This kid, this 24-year-old kid at the time, who understood what we still have a hard time understanding, which is your, the place of your birth is a lottery, mm-hmm. right? You're, you, you were born in America. You won the lottery. That's okay, right. great. That's right. But, but what does that mean? What, is, what then do you owe? the rest of the world. Is it true that the suffering of any one person anywhere in the world is the responsibility of all peoples everywhere? I don't Um, know. And no, I'm sorry. That's the kid. That's, that's why this kid I think is a heroic figure to me and to so many other people. I don't worship at the altar of Warren Buffett like many do in this country, certainly in the business community. Uh, But there's one thing about Warren Buffett uh, that I, uh, that I uh, uh, admire. And I said this to him face to face um, in a couple of our different uh, meetings uh, that Warren Buffett is the first to tell you um, what Reza just said, that the place of your birth is a lottery. Warren Buffett will tell you he does not become the Oracle of Omaha if he is not born in America. So much of the success that Warren Buffett has had, he will tell you up front, is because he won the lottery being born in this country. That said, when we come forward, um, I want to come to Dr. King, uh, my hero. As many of you, mostly in this audience, know, I regard Dr. King, as I've said it uh, more times than I can count. You know my line about King. I regard him as the greatest American this country has ever produced. That's my assessment of Dr. King, the greatest American we've ever produced. And when when Reza was telling this story a moment ago about this moment that Baskerville has in front of his students uh, in Persia, my mind went to that moment that King had standing at the Riverside Church on the west side of Manhattan. Um, you know where I'm going, and we're going to go there as soon as we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. So Reza Aslan, as you were telling that story about Howard Baskerville standing in front of his students in Persia and telling them, um, that he could no longer, you know, uh, avoid this calling uh, that he was feeling to join the struggle uh, in solidarity with them. My mind went to, to MLK uh, and standing uh, at the Riverside Church in Manhattan to give his Beyond Vietnam speech, which, uh, as you know, I've written a book about this, put a target on his back. And literally um, one year to the day, uh, one year to the day later, they killed Dr. King. He gives that speech beyond Vietnam on April 4, 1967. Uh, he, he tells America, you, America, are the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. And for that, um, they put a target on his back and literally killed him one year to the day, almost one year to the hour later in Memphis. But that is um, the crime. Uh, the Dr. King committed for which he had to pay ultimately with his life. But King stands in that church and says, I come to this place tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. My conscience leaves me no other choice. King had that moment. Baskerville had that moment. And I want to come back to this notion you raised earlier about what we do in our lives with Baskerville and King as models when we face oppression. And we are challenged to activate our faith. We are challenged to accept that, that, that advocacy is not a spectator sport. We are challenged to accept that unless we speak the truth that we know, then the suffering gets rendered invisible. Talk to me, Reza. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny because 
after he had joined the revolution and and uh, during a, a battle in order to break a siege against the city and and to bring food and and medical equipment and he was shot in the heart and killed uh, next to his students afterwards a lot of people in America especially in the State Department were trying to figure out what the heck just happened mm-hmm. and and how to explain it and there were all kinds of rumors. It's funny that you were, earlier you were talking about, quote-unquote, his conversion. One of the biggest rumors was that he had converted to Islam. Because mm-hmm. could, people couldn't figure out why this 24-year-old kid would have sacrificed himself, why he would have given up all that privilege that he had, you know, his, his American citizenship, uh, and to have died for somebody else's freedom, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a, a country, a people that he had nothing in common with uh, on the surface there were all kinds of you know rumors out there to try to figure this out when in reality (laughs) the simplest answer because he thought it was the right thing to do Mm -hmm. because he thought his faith demand because he thought it's what jesus would have done was right there but it was impossible i think for people to accept it because to accept it they would have been forced to think beyond their own individual identity, their own tribal membership, right? Their own clan. Um, and to and to think as humans and to actually have to wrestle with the responsibility yeah. that they would have for others like this. And yeah. and I think that's really where where this is coming from. That that's where the real connection is, right? That that between um Dr. King and Baskerville and so many people who are willing to sacrifice themselves not just for you know, the the benefit of their own group, mm-hmm. but for all of humanity. Yeah. And, you know, th- there's, there's, there's the reason why these are still people who, who we follow and that we, yeah. that we learn about. And mm-hmm. obviously everybody at this point knows about Martin Luther King, but my hope is that pe- more and more people learn about Howard Baskerville as well. Yep. Um, I'm not asking people to take a bullet like Baskerville or, or King. I am <laughs> asking them to recognize, as I said earlier, that, that advocacy for those things you believe in is not a spectator sport. You got to get off the sideline and get involved. Right. Um, let me just ask you, I'm looking at my clock here. We just got about four minutes left in this hour. Um, just broadly speaking, give me your critique of the lack of solidarity uh, in the pursuit of justice in this country uh, to, to make America a nation as good as its promise, uh, hopefully at some point. Um, but, but, but solidarity um, is uh uh, it's hard to find these days in a, in a country that can't even get to civility. You can't get to solidarity if you can't get to civility. That's my read. But tell me where you think we are in this country in terms of all the people that we're going to need to work in, in harmony yeah. and in some solidarity to make this to make this experiment, as I call it, in democracy one day a real democracy. That's my read. For some reason, we have fallen under this mistaken idea that freedom is a zero-sum game, Mm -hmm. that equality is a zero-sum game, that if certain people within our society, marginalized, oppressed people, gain the same rights and freedoms and privileges that the majority do, that somehow those freedoms get taken away from the majority. Mm -hmm. And the absurdity of that is clear on its face, right? Um, but I think that that's where we are right now. I think it's so hard to get solidarity, particularly from 
white, wealthy people of privilege who, who truly do believe that uh, if, a, if a black person or if a brown person or if an Asian person uh, achieves the same level of rights and privileges, they do, somehow that takes it away from them. Mm-hmm. But of course, that's not the case. That, that freedom is universal. Rights are universal. They apply to all people or they apply to no one. Mm. And I think that that's the biggest lesson that we need to learn as a country, especially right now in this time of great divide. Yeah. How do, how do you square what you've just said? How do you juxtapose what you've just said with a Supreme Court that every day is uh, giving us uh, rulings uh, in the month of June that speak to their view of shrinking rights rather than expanding rights? Well, it's by design. Yeah. It's, a, it's exactly by design. You know, we've spent the last decade making sure that this is precisely the kind of Supreme Court that maintains a kind of, you know, uh, a status quo, right, that people in positions of privilege do not want to give up in any way, precisely because they think somehow it will remove their rights or their privileges. Mm -hmm. I don't know. This is a generational fight right now, Travis, as you know, Um, you know, it's it's hard when we're looking at what's going on right now to be in any way optimistic. Yeah. But I do think that, you know, as Obama tells us all the time, yeah. you know, think about the, the long arc yeah. uh, and and have that kind of perspective. And, and sure. sometimes it's hard, but yep. it's what we got to do. Well, I always make a distinction. Uh, you are a professor of these things. I, I, I always make a distinction between optimism and hope. Optimism suggests there's something you can see, feel, or touch that gives you reason to believe that things are going to get better. Uh, hope just <laughs> you you move even when you don't have the evidence, right? You, you can't see it, uh, but you uh, you keep hope alive, as Jesse Jackson might say. Uh, Reza Aslam, uh, brilliant scholar, Emmy and Peabody nominated, uh, best-selling author. His latest text is called "An American Martyr in Persia: The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville." Enjoyed this immensely, Reza. Thanks for your time. We'll do it again, my friend. Anytime, Travis. Anytime. All the best to you.